All right, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to the book of Ephesians. Book of Ephesians in chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I sound a little bit like I'm in a tin can. And that's my problem in life. Explains a lot. Ephesians chapter 4, and let's go ahead and open in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the grace that you've given to us to be able to come together, to be able to gather together, to fellowship, to have a good time, to have fun with each other, uh, to enjoy each other's company, and to be able to glorify you in that. We thank you for your word that you have not left us um, as a people whose God is speechless, but that you have revealed things for us and have invaded time and space and provided for us such great and wonderful mysteries with your interpretation of what it means. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for holiness. We pray that you would cause it that within us we would infinitely value your holiness and that we would find such incredible satisfaction with your holiness and that you'd be glorified by that. We pray that you would teach us, instruct us this evening arrest our hearts, arrest our minds, indeed arrest our attentions to be able to be focused upon you and what you would have for us this evening. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ephesians chapter 4, looking at verses 25 to the end of the chapter till verse 32 or thereabouts, and uh, picking up a little bit of what we had talked about last week, you'll recognize that where we're at in our context is We've examined several weeks ago the idea of how it is that every single one of us needs to be the ones that are the ultimate ministers of a church, that we are the ones that should be ministering and essentially be ministering to one another. And it's the task of the prophets, the apostles, the teachers, the evangelists, the shepherds. Those are the individuals that are supposed to equip the saints, equip every Christian for the work of the ministry. So that it is indeed every Christian that is doing the ministry. And I think there's still such that significant perception that is a wrong perception that a lot of us have that church is a service to the community to provide some kind of meaningful worship, to provide a message, to provide fellowships, and that really all the congregation does is shows up and enjoys what's going on. And of course, there's nothing wrong with enjoying church. That's definitely a good thing. But there's also work to be done within the church. And that's everybody's job. That's everybody's task. And we saw how sin is such a significant hindrance to a body of Christ, to a local gathering, to a local congregation of believers, rising up and protecting one another, protecting each other in doctrine, in theology, and in holiness as well, and creating a safe and secure and stable environment for us all to live in and for us all to dwell in. And then at that point, I think the real enjoyment can begin to take place. And then that sort of brought us into a necessary discussion because if sin is the greatest hindrance of ministry as it is, then there must be something that we need to know in order to deal with that. And that's what we had looked at previously in the idea of not walking as the world walks, not walking as the Gentiles or what we consider in that context to be 
unbelievers, not walking as a non-Christian would walk. In other words, not living, not behaving, not thinking as a non-Christian would be thinking, living, or behaving. And the reason being is because we didn't learn Christ while doing those things. We didn't learn Christ while acting as a non-Christian. We learned Christ by the teaching and the preaching of the gospel message. That's where we learned Christ, and then so that's where we live Christ, is in those concepts. And so if there is a comparison that should be made between us and the world, there must be something fundamentally different about the way that we live as compared to the way that they live. And one of the reasons is because the way that they live is in the futility of their minds, is in pointless thoughts that lead to pointless living. In other words, the entire way in which an unchristian would spend their time is in pointless activities. Now, of course, the big thing to take away from this is not thinking in terms of a secular versus a sacred divide. In other words, there's things that I do as a Christian, there's things that I do as a non-Christian, or I should say there's things that I do as a Christian, and then there's just sort of regular things or you know, or non-sacred things that I would do. And you can include sports in those activities or school or work or whatever it is. There's nothing that's really like a spiritual value to doing some of those things. That's not the case. The true key, the real reality is recognizing how it is that I do those things as a Christian, how it is that I play a sport, how it is that I play a game, how it is that I work, how it is that I, uh, that I learn, how it is that I pursue an education, how it is that I pursue relationships, how it is that I live every single area of life, but to live in those areas not like an unbeliever. That's the task of a Christian. And in fact, much of what we see tonight is an explanation or at least a good framework and maybe a really good starting point to understanding how it is that I live in these other places as a Christian and not the way that a non-Christian would pursue those things. That's the task. That's the key. How it is that I live in any particular area of life. And in fact, within that, that framework, within that mindset, I'll start to realize that there are certain activities that I can't do as a Christian, because I can't do them as a Christian. I can only do them as an unbeliever. And so with that in mind, there are activities that will end up ceasing. But you'll find that most of the activities, much of the activities that you're already involved in, are in and of themselves not sinful concepts. And so the task is to figure out how it is that I do those things as a Christian, how it is that I live in these areas as somebody who is not an unbeliever and that I do those things in a manner in which there is a severe difference between me and non-Christians when we would participate in those activities. And again, we'll see exceptionally in our context this evening of how that's going to take place. And the big idea, the main thing is in that concept that was introduced last week of putting off the old man, putting off the former us that was an unbeliever, put the unbeliever version of you off, the BC, the before Christ version of you off, and then put on the new version of you, that version of you that was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ for you to wear, for you to live as, and to live not as the world does, but as the church does. 
and living in such a way as to benefit your spiritual walk and then to benefit the spiritual walk in the lives of those around you. There's nothing that we do as Christians that benefits us spiritually that at some point is not intended to go out to somebody else. John Calvin was rebuked for having spent three years studying the Word of God and not sharing it with somebody else. He basically locked himself in his basement and read the Word of God for three years, and he was rebuked by one of his friends to share all that wealth of knowledge that he had gained. There is no way in which a Christian should ever experience what I would call rogue Christianity. Just you and Jesus doesn't exist. That's not the kind of Christian that Christ purchased. He purchased a Christian that they would, in fact, experience a benefit and a blessing in their spiritual reality, but then that goes out to somebody else at some point in time to become a blessing to them. So Paul capstones those two previous contexts here in verses 25 through 32 and gives us such important tools on how it is that we can put off the old us and put on the new us, which every single one of us should be excited about to see what we look like as a more holy individual. That's one thing that I regret so much about high school is I would have loved to have been a Christian during those times. Would have loved that. Would have loved to experience what I experienced, but having experienced as a saved individual giving glory to God. Because that would have made it all meaningful, and instead it was all meaningless. But of course, God is sovereign, and His timing is perfect, and He doesn't do anything wrong. He doesn't do any mistakes, and so within His timing, things work out great, and to Him be the glory and the honor forever. But definitely... The thing that we should look into within this passage of Scripture is how it is that we can put off the old us and how it is that we can put on the new us and be super excited of what it is that we're going to do and what it is that we're going to be as holier individuals. And we already have that new us. It's just we need to understand how it is that we're supposed to live as the new us. So without further ado, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32, it says this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We're still stuck in that concept that we introduced, I think, several weeks ago, that this is a very extreme view on how to live. Because essentially now, this is going to detail for us how it is that we should be speaking, how it is that we should be feeling, and how it is that we should be behaving. There are specific categories here that affect what you say, they affect what you feel and how you should feel it, 
And then they affect your behavior, what it is that you should be doing. It affects your actions. And it's in such a radical and extreme degree that it's as if you can't even joke about somebody else in a negative sense. And that's not necessarily a bad thing if that's exactly how you take this verse and you move away and you never make fun of anybody ever again. That's not necessarily a bad thing. But we understand context. We understand humor. Humor is something that is fun and we can, we can joke at the expense of somebody else, those different kinds of things. But if you think about it in the terms of a significant, extreme degree, do you really think that God, when you arrive upon the shores of eternity, is going to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant, but you didn't joke enough about the other person? You probably could have said that their, that their outfit was ridiculous a little bit more frequently. Could have said that they looked silly could have said that they're goobers, that they're goofballs, that, the, that their eyebrows connect together. And it's not an eyebrows, it's an eyebrow. It's weird. Everybody's like checking. It's like, that's not the case. That's not the case. That's not the case. I'm not a unibrow. It doesn't exist. The point and the main emphasis is upon how it is that, again, that I could joke with one another as a Christian would not joking with each other, speaking to each other, feeling about each other, or behaving with each other in a manner in which an unbeliever would do those things. So again, we talked about this last week. Here's a wonderful picture that is painted for you of what you shouldn't be doing, and it's when you examine the world, don't do what they're doing in any capacity and in any context. Don't learn from experience don't learn from their experiences. Don't learn from their thoughts, from their feelings. Because again, these are individuals walking around in darkness. How do you expect them to give you direction in life when they can't see? There's nothing to be gleaned in looking at the world and saying, that's how I should behave. There is everything to be gleaned from how God says you should behave, from what God says you should be saying, from what God says you should be feeling, and the power that he gives you to have control over these areas of your life. That's what's significant is that you're not left to your own devices to think, speak, and behave. You are left with the power of the Holy Spirit to speak, think, and behave. The old you is a sinner who is concerned with yourself only. It's a self-centered, you as the center of your reality and the center of your existence and as the, the means and the end to your own enjoyment and satisfaction within life, which of course will fail. The new you is a sinner saved by grace concerned with God's glory, your sanctification, and your brothers and sisters' well-being. The difference between the old you and the new you is that your focus, if this were your, your life's camera, and you walk around and it's doing nothing but filming you left and right, and you play back the camera to watch you all day long, it's you, you television, it's YouTube. Oh wait, the name was taken. It's, this is all about you, copywritten, I'm sure too. This is all about you, but instead the new you is taking this camera and turning it and making the focus on someone else. And it usually is the focus being completely on God. And as the overflow of that now becomes concerned with the rest of his people. 
Now, it's very interesting at the beginning of our context, because if you'll notice, there's language that's similar to the language that we looked at last week in the idea of putting away falsehood. Literally, it's the same word that we looked at last week with put off the old you. This is saying put off falsehood, take falsehood off of you. And we have a therefore within our context that is reaching back and pulling the information and plugging it into our current context. So therefore is saying everything that just happened is relevant to what we're talking about and indeed defines what we're talking about. So this is what's crazy about this is that falsehood has a higher meaning and a higher significance than simply telling a lie. In our context, the definition of what is false and the definition of what is true is more than just simply running around saying that 2 plus 2 equals 3, which I don't know, you could probably get there with common core math. But 2 plus 2 equals 3, that's a lie. 2 plus 2 equals, this is correct, right? Any mathematicians can fact check me on some of these things. 2 plus 2 equals 4, that's true. And then 2 plus 2 equals 3 is false. Thank you. It's a good thing to have you here because I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> so there's something more important even though falsehood and truth will contain those principles in our context the main emphasis upon what is false and the main emphasis upon what is true has to do with the way you live so in other words if you're supposed to put off falsehood but you're also supposed to put off the old you then living the way that you used to be as an unbeliever is a lie. That's a lie. Living as what God has said you are, and this is what we call justification. God has declared you to be not just simply righteous, but as righteous as His Son Jesus Christ. So when you live outside of that declaration, that's why it's a lie, because God is saying something else about you. When you're living as, as in a different capacity as what God is saying about you, you're lying about who you are. Put away that lie. And in fact, you can see here in the context, it's saying, speak the truth with your neighbor. That could be Christian specifically, but that could also be anybody that you come in contact with. Don't lie about who you are by virtue of acting as if you're an unbeliever. This is such a significant problem for youth. Outside of Christian circles, it is very easy in non-Christian circles to not act as if you were a Christian. And maybe it's for acceptance purposes. Maybe it's for the opportunity to have social status. Maybe it's a popularity contest. Maybe you just enjoy being with friends and enjoy being with somebody that can actually like you. When I was in youth group, it was very strange for me. It felt like I had more acceptance with the world than what I did with the church, which of course in a lot of ways was abundantly true because I wasn't saved. Birds of a feather flock together. But the reality was that I, I should have felt like I was accepted within that community. But I could, even though I wasn't saved, I still professed it in certain Christian circles so that when I went out into the world, it was very easy to, in those worldly relationships not behave in any way that would cause people to think that I wasn't of the world. 
that I was of something else, that I was a Christian. I was lying. There was a lie that existed amongst my neighbors. And so when Paul is saying, speak the truth with his neighbors, he's doing abundantly more here in instruction than just simply saying, go up to somebody and if, and if they look ridiculous, be honest with them. He's saying something different and more deeper than that. He's saying, live your life since you have been called, since you have indeed heard about him. That's the conclusion that I draw of this group from what we looked at last week. If you have indeed heard about the Lord, you have heard about the Lord. Therefore, speak the truth. Live truthfully with the world around you, with Christians around you, that you are in fact a Christian. And don't walk in a manner in which the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. And the reason being is because if you are saved, if you're a Christian, that is a lie about who you are. And in fact, to strike home the imagery even a lot more, recognize that you're living below the quality of life that you could be living as a Christian. That's the truth about who you are. The truth about who you are is a blood-bought, predestined unto adoption as children of God. That's who you are. You are they that God has chosen from before the foundations of the world to bring into the closest and most intimate fellowship and communion with Him as His indeed adopted children. He has brought you into the highest degree of privilege as inheritors as heirs to the same privileges that Jesus has as Son of God. That's the truth about who you are. That's awesome. We're 20 minutes in and we haven't even gotten past one verse yet. Falsehood, biblically, truthhood, biblically, these concepts will contain the idea of not speaking verbal lies, not spreading fibs or talking falsely or those kinds of things because true Christians don't talk that way. But the main emphasis and the main idea is upon the fact that living as a non-Christian when you are a Christian is one of the most significant lies that you could act tell even if you never speak in that regard stop lying to your neighbor and start being honest and being truthful with who you are as a son and as a daughter in Christ and don't be afraid to begin to enjoy what that's like to put off this falsehood and start putting on this truth if you were a drunkard, you stopped drinking because to continue drinking after being saved is lying about who you are. You're no longer a drunkard. You're not an alcoholic. You're a son or you're a daughter of God. That's the truth about who you are. You're not an addict. You're not a fornicator. So you would stop having sexual activity that is immoral and that is a fornication because you're no longer a sexually immoral individual. That's not who you are. That would be a lie to continue in those activities. 
You are now pronounced to be righteous, to have fulfilled the law of God perfectly as Jesus did, and that you are as pleasing unto God positionally as Jesus has been from all of eternity past. That's who you are. You may have been a jerk before, but you now, as a Christian, stop treating people with contempt because that's a lie about who you are. And even if we go back a little bit into verse 24, you'll notice that it even carries the same concept. It carries that idea further into our context. Put off the new... I'm sorry, put on the new self-individual, the new you, and that this individual was, get this, created after the likeness of God. You are, as a Christian, created after God. That image that was broken by the original sin, that image that was marred that you were originally created in, that image is broken. There is a significant decrease in the amount in which you reflect God. Now, as a creature in Christ, you have been created after the likeness of God in truth, it says. Or more specifically, in true righteousness and holiness. Or in other words, God, you are created after the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness from the truth is the literal Greek there. So this is the idea that living as the new you is living as the true you. That's truly who you are. That's truly who you're meant to be. That's truly who you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be somebody who is like God. Or what we would call godly. You were created from the truth. Therefore, speak truth to one another. And this helps us to understand that the truth ultimately has to do with the gospel and living out this gospel life that redeems you to the image of God within your life. And in fact, when we get to Ephesians 5.1, it then says to imitate God, imitate him, be like the divine creator. Be like the omnipotent one that created everything out of nothing. Even though you can't reflect his incommunicable attributes, you can be like him, especially in righteousness and holiness. And his holiness is an infinitely satisfiable, sustainable, and such a wonderful joy to experience. That's yours. Verses 26 and 27, as we continue through, the question still kind of remains from last week, how do I do this? How do I not lie about who I am? How do I live truly? And in fact, in many ways, you can say that, that as an unbeliever, that's false. That's a false way of life. That's not who they're truly supposed to be. As a believer, that's who you're truly supposed to be. How does this ultimately end up playing out? Now, you'll notice here, verses 26 and 27, that's kind of a unit here. Sinful anger is apparently an opportunity for Satan. There is, in our context and in the Scriptures, an anger that exists that's the right kind of anger. It's called a righteous anger. When Jesus Christ goes into the temple 
and realizes the effects of the people's sin upon the house of God, he doesn't gingerly, he doesn't romantically, he doesn't in some ways lovingly go over and kindly ask people to stop doing the wickedness that they're doing in the temple. He doesn't go over there and say, I don't want to violate your will in what you're doing. I don't, want to, I don't want to come off as rude. I really don't want to be offensive, but what you're doing within the temple of God is not that nice. Would you prayerfully consider not doing this anymore? I believe it says that he made a whip. I believe it says that he, in, even in an, an angry context, overturned the tables, violently forced those people out, and radically dealt with those individuals that felt so safe and secure within the temple. On another occasion, he rebukes the Pharisees in what appears to be a very righteous anger for the sins that they have committed, even calling them sons of Satan, broods of vipers, speaking in such harsh language against them. Of course, he loves them. He loves them enough to, in righteous anger, speak truth to them. But there is definitely a degree in which anger can exist and a person hasn't gotten to the point of sinning yet, but the world and the former you would be angry and sin. And it's going to show us a lot more of what that means in this context. But recognize this. To be angry and then to sin is essentially to build an addition to your life as if your life were a house. You're going to add on a room and you're going to open up the door of this room and you're going to go to Satan and say, I've got a rent-free place for you to live in. And you invite him right in. You give him. That's what the idea of opportunity here means in the Greek text. Don't give Satan an opportunity. That means don't give him a place to live within your life whereby which there is an influence that he can have and a, and a desire to draw you away into even more dangerous territory of sin. Don't give Satan a habitation within your life. And there is a significant way of doing that. And it's by, if you are angry, don't sin. One of the greatest pieces of, of advice that I have ever gotten in my entire life, I'll share with you guys this evening. The greatest thing that I have ever heard, the most beneficial thing that I have ever heard, the number one thing that is seared into my brain and to my conscience by an older man of the faith who is godly and who is wise, Pastor Sean, the greatest advice, the greatest encouragement, the greatest command that he ever gave to me was don't sin. Don't sin. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. If you're in a position whereby which it could be so much easier to sin, be angry. You can do that. There's a permission. You can be angry, but... Don't live as the Gentiles live. Don't live as the unbelievers live. Don't live as the old you lives. Be angry and don't sin. Because in doing so, you give Satan a foothold within your life. 
Guys, and this is a very significant problem. I've been in men's ministry meetings consistently throughout the past where a guy has been wronged by another dude. And having been wronged, it is okay to be angry. It's okay to be angry in the concept of somebody sinning, somebody sinning against you. There's the reality to be angry. Be angry at sin. Always be angry at sin. Be angry when somebody sins against you. Sin is such a horrendous thing and we should never be in positions where we would love it. Therefore, we should hate it. We should be angry, but don't sin. Because a lot of times what ends up happening for us guys is because we are programmed a particular way, but our programming has married sin. And so when somebody wrongs us, we think about causing them harm. We think about what it is that we could do to beat the snot out of them for harming us and for offending us, for looking at us the wrong way, strutting like a peacock. Don't look at me wrongly. And ladies, oftentimes in friendships and in relationships, anger and especially within our context, is something that can cause you to be bitter at friends. It's a very consistent thing that I've seen amongst ladies that if there is, especially when an offense has taken place or something of that effect, that when there is a wrongdoing, that there's a tendency to, in verbal communication, to express a reconciliation, but then there changes this relationship status to the point in which there's a, there's a bitterness at that person. They exist then in your mind with this stigma that they did wrong you and that they're just going to sit there in, their, in your mind as somebody that, that wronged you. That's, that's the pointless living. That's pointless. It's futile in your mind to not move beyond these things into areas of sanctification where you're not sinning. Those are just two quick things that come to my mind in that specific sense, but we're going to get into more specific details on this subject of anger in our context here this evening. He then moves on, the Apostle Paul, he moves away from this idea, don't live falsely, live for who you are supposed to be, be truthful about who you are. You're a Christian, you're a child of God, you're not somebody that lives the way that the world lives, you don't have a synonymousness of your life and the world's life. Be angry, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Reconcile the day of. This is huge in marriages. Huge in marriages. And we're going to get into Ephesians 5 that talks about marriages. One thing to have ingrained within your mind now, especially those of you that want to be married, those of you that are married, and this definitely applies to me, is that when there is a battle, when there is a war, when there is a fight, when there is a conflict that takes place within a marriage, do not let that day end before you reconcile. Because it says it right here. Don't let the day end even since this passage of Scripture right here in verse 26 is talking about a righteous anger. You have the right to be angry. But one way to prevent that turning into sin is to stop being angry. Come together quickly. Friendships are this way. 
church relationships are this way, but especially marriage relationships. Don't let the day end without resolving your anger. And I think that coincides with reconciliation. So he talks about don't live falsely, live truthfully, be angry, don't sin. So live your lives rightly, uh, take control of your emotions so that that way there's sanctified emotions. Don't give the devil opportunities, resist him and cause him to flee from you. And then he goes into actions. Don't let a thief steal any longer. The reason being why this is so important to our context is because the old you with the camera focused on you is all focused about what you can gain from circumstances, what you can gain from situations. And so to throw this in here as in, here's somebody that shouldn't steal, this is, this is the lifestyle of living as the new you, whereby which you're not concerned about taking. It is more blessed to give than it is to take, Jesus said. You're not concerned about taking something, you're concerned about working so hard as to have an abundance to then be a benefit and a blessing to somebody else. Live rightly, live truthfully, have control over your emotions, don't have an opportunity for the devil to have a foothold within your life, and then live in such a capacity whereby which you work hard doing honest work, which, again, honesty, truthfulness, what kind of work do you think that this is? Do you think this is only hard work as if you were to go to a a corporation and you climb the chain and you're the CEO and you're making millions and you remember your pastor Jeremy and you're like, man, I really need to just support his ministry and I need to just fund that dude tons of cash. You know, that's okay to get, yeah, (laughs) that's okay to get to that position. That's nobody's saying that that's wrong. But the main emphasis upon honest work is work of righteousness, whereby which when you are giving, you are sharing for that same reason that we talked about in true ministry, you are giving ultimately as a concern for somebody's spiritual needs. It's the whole reason why you would work in such a capacity as to have a supply for their physical needs is you are most concerned about their spiritual needs. And then he enters into some specific details here about how to apply putting off the old you and putting on the new you. And he focuses again now on speech, things that you say, and attitudes that you have. And so let's look at this here. Don't steal, work hard, share. And then don't live your lives in such a capacity whereby which you offend the Holy Spirit. The word here in the Greek for grieve has the idea of to make somebody sad, like a death of a loved one would cause you to grieve. It would make you sad. Don't do that to the Holy Spirit. But the word also carries with it the idea of not vexing the Holy Spirit, not irritating the Holy Spirit, not ticking off the Holy Spirit by sinful activity or participation within the old you. And he's saying here that all of us need to begin to recognize, you'll notice he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you are sealed 
for the day of redemption, don't live in such a counterintuitive life whereby which you grieve the Holy Spirit who is given as the Ephesians 1 guarantee of your salvation. Don't grieve him with sinful activities. And I think that has to pierce. That has to pierce the hearts and the minds of genuine Christians who value God. That has to strike us as the worst concept in the entirety of history is that by our actions, we would sadden the Holy Spirit. We would irritate Him by the presence of sin within our lives. God is holy, but there is a particular characteristic of the third person of the Trinity that His name is Holy Spirit. Therefore, holiness is something that is characteristic for this Holy Spirit Himself. So that way, sin is something that would characteristically offend Him even more so. And it is such a mind-boggling concept because our age, our generation, is something whereby which we're more concerned about the offense of other people that we would compromise in the extent of offending the Holy Spirit. There's nothing that is committed outside of His sight and every single sin is something that is grievous to Him. It's not that you don't already have redemption that he's talking about here and being sealed for the day of redemption, but it's the full redemption whereby which you are finally completely freed from sin. The Holy Spirit is your guarantee of that fulfillment within your life. Don't grieve him. Don't grieve him with sin. Let's see if we can wrap up. This is some very important portions of the context here that would probably warrant its own sermon. Let's see what we can do here. Now Paul begins to combine the subjects of attitude and speech and the issues that he's already introduced. And he begins to express this idea of bitterness that we talked about even a moment ago, that really emotions that are just like the world's emotions, that lifestyles that are just like the world's lifestyles, These are lifestyles that lead to bitterness. And Hebrews tells us that a root of bitterness, one person within a church that is bitter, defiles many. A person who comes into a congregation of believers, a person who has bitterness, is somebody that brings the rest of the church down into corruption. This is serious. This is serious to not be bitter. Don't be bitter at the world. Don't be bitter at the president. Don't be bitter at at individuals that have offended you. Don't be bitter of the workplace. Don't be bitter if somebody's wronged you. Don't be bitter if you're playing a basketball game and what's his number was acting so super cocky and he just makes your skin crawl. (laughs) Sit down. I had fun at the game last night. I don't know if you can tell. <laughs> don't be bitter. Don't let it lead you then to wrath. This is, this is acting upon anger. Wrath is when you have 
anger built up to the point in which it needs to be acted upon. This is righteous for God to do. God has a righteous wrath and a righteous anger, and because of his justice and his holiness, has to be moved to wrath. But God is not revengefully seeking to be a bully within the sky, and there's just a bunch of tiny little ants that he's going to hit with a magnifying glass. He is wrathful out of justice and holiness. But when we as creatures experience anger to the degree in which we sin, and then we act upon the anger, it then becomes wrath. And it's a significant problem here. Throw away this concept of bitterness. Throw away this concept of wrath. Clamor here is when anger leads you to shouting. Literally no reason in any context to be yelling angrily at anyone. You can yell at a basketball game when number 30 keeps hitting those three points. Glorious. You can, you can yell if your youth pastor is encouraging the coach who's angry to throw a chair. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That might be, that might, that might be there in our texts. My bad. Literally no reason to yell. Literally no reason. And throw it away. Throw angry yelling away is what we're being told in our context. Then it talks about corrupting speech. Don't have any kind of corrupting talk within your mouth. Now, we can say within our context that the way in which you speak should avoid crude jesting, perverted jokes, worldly ways of joking. But the main emphasis here is upon anger and not letting this lead you to abusive speech, whereby which you're trying to use your words to tear somebody down. Don't do that. That's when anger has led you to sin, is now your words are an instrument of death. And that's, that's the, the worst thing to keep in mind, that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Sometimes I wish somebody would just stone me to death rather than speak ill, rather than talk an abusive speech. Throw this away, put this aside, because these are things that a Christian should not have within their emotions and within their speech. And it's important to recognize that James talks about speech at length. Control your tongue. Control the way you speak. Don't blaspheme somebody for whom is created in the image of God. You're speaking against the creation of God. That's like if you're in the art gallery of God and you said, this painting looks stupid. Nobody in their right mind would do that in the art gallery of God. So nobody in their sanctified mind should do that in the creation of God. Don't use abusive speech. Instead, and here's the new you, that old you, that the, the unbelieving you, that's an ugly person. Super ugly person. And, and the more that we begin to come to terms with that reality, that the previous us is an ugly person, is a horrible individual, nobody likes that kind of a person that runs around within a room and is chewing people out, is ticked off all the time, is bitter all the time. They are the divine definition of a divine cosmic killjoy. There's no fun 
with that kind of a person. There's no enjoyment. There's no satisfaction. There's only the tearing down of people in order for them to elevate themselves. That's ugly. And I hope we get to a position of viewing the old us as ugly as God views the old us. Now here's the... Here's the turning point, and here's where it should be a blessing, and it should be an encouragement. The new you is not like that. Because the new you is compassionate. And the new you exhibits one of the most conscience-piercing, soul-piercing way of living And it is this constant attitude of forgiveness. And it's an attitude of forgiveness that has a trump card kind of a motivation that trumps every single circumstance and causes the new you to forgive always, regardless of the circumstance. And the motivation that does this is the total forgiveness of you from God. In fact, Matthew 6.15, if you don't forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now this doesn't mean that you, if you have the forgiveness of God and you don't forgive somebody else, you lose your salvation. <laughs> it's not what it means. Jesus' point is that extreme version of Christianity that Paul picked up on and is teaching us in Ephesians 4, that extreme version of Christianity is one in which he is demonstrating for you what the new you looks like, that the new you always, always considers God's forgiveness of you first And then out of the outpour of brokenness for everything that God has forgiven you for, you are compelled by the forgiveness of God. You are motivated by the forgiveness of God. You are moved by the forgiveness of God so that no matter what it is that somebody has done to you or has taken place within your life, you are compelled by the overflow of the forgiveness of God to say, I forgive you. Every time. That seems hard, seems impossible, is hard, is impossible, unless you start with that a priori, with that presupposition, with that starting point, that before you do anything in life, you contemplate the forgiveness of God for you in total life forgiveness, past, present, future. That is somebody that is so attractive. That's somebody that I can trust the weakness of my humanity around. That's somebody that I can trust the realness of who I am as somebody that's going to stumble and fall and let you down. That's somebody that is so secure to be around because I know that your immediate reaction is forgiveness. You need to know the immediate reaction is forgiveness. That's the kind of people to be around and that's the kind of person to be. If you live this way, you'll never have trouble 
finding a friend in the church ever again. That's the kind of person that the right kind of people will want to be around and that's the kind of life that has freed up its mind, freed up its conscience to live with nothing but joy and satisfaction within life because it doesn't know how to hold a grudge. It only knows how to forgive out of the overflow and the abundance of the forgiveness that God granted to us. I counseled a lady for a year up in Santa Fe over the phone. And um, without sparing you some of the gory details, she had a husband that was unfaithful constantly. And as the world's standards would go, and in fact what people, close friends, were even saying to her constantly, go ahead, divorce him. Get out of that. You deserve better. But there was something that was stuck in her mind and it caused our counseling sessions over the phone to be, how do you be a good godly wife to glorify God rather than, I guess you're just going to do what you're going to do and this marriage is going to end and you're not being truthful about the gospel because the marriage is supposed to represent the gospel. It avoided that completely. And it was this woman whose husband did not deserve her. But out of the overflow of her pricked conscience that God was so easily ready to forgive her, that God has forgiven her, that who is she to not forgive even these grave sins of her husband? They're still together. Living the new life means that we learn what God has to say about us. This is crucial to understanding who we are in Christ. Living the new life means redeeming our emotions with the gospel. We don't give in to sinful impulses like stealing, like trying to take, but instead we are hard workers that are concerned with what others have instead of what we have, who control our speech We're concerned about who the Holy Spirit is and what He thinks, and we live in utter, total, complete compassion and forgiveness of each other. That is a beautiful new you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, indeed, how could our hearts not be broken in the offenses that we have caused against you, a holy sinless God that as you have described us in Ezekiel 16 as a bride that was unfaithful and yet you redeemed us and restored us and brought us right back into the beautiful relationship of marriage with your son Jesus Christ please please remind us of that so that we can be compassionate and forgiving to each other and exist in such a glorious version of life such a safe version of life, such an emotionally safe, a mentally safe, a spiritually safe place to be amongst believers that we can help each other out with our sins and that we would not be bitter or wrathful or clamorous or abusive in our speech, but that we would bring each other closer into relationships through love and compassion, forgiving each other, and then being freed up to remove the offenses so that way we can help each other out. 
And we pray that this would bring you honor and glory. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.